Do you remember going through puberty? Do you remember the raging hormones? One minute everything was fine. The next you were screaming at your parents for not letting you go to a party in your new friend Kelly's basement, even though Kelly's older sister will totally be there the whole time, and then sobbing into your pillow while blasting the Todd Terry remix of Everything But The Girls Missing. With the new smells, hair, pimples, it was like every day you'd wake up to some fresh hell taking place right there on your face. It was almost like overnight some demon had possessed your body and was torturing you from within. Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who would not be 14 years old again if you paid me all the money in the world. Today, he may not have put a crucifix up his patoufus, as my 8-year-old calls it, or vomited pea soup, but this 14-year-old boy and his saga of possession by the devil and or his Aunt Tilly inspired The Exorcist. When The Exorcist came out in 1973, it was considered one of the most terrifying films of the decade. Film critic Stanley Kaufman wrote in The New Republic, quote, This is the scariest film I've seen in years. The only scary film I've seen in years. The Exorcist will scare the hell out of you. Especially for ex-Catholics like my father, who had grown up in the church and were still haunted by its dogma. The Exorcist was a metaphor for our powerlessness against the evils of the world. But The Exorcist may never have happened without a kid nicknamed Roland Doe for anonymity and the brief but dramatic series of extremely strange and scary events that took place around, in, and on him in the winter of 1949. Roland's story was first made public in a Washington Post article in the fall of 49 titled, Priest Freeze Mount Rainier Boy Reported Held in Devil's Grip. The Washington Post, folks. Imagine if the Washington Post tried to run a headline like that today. So, just a quick note before we dig in, every account I read of what happened to Roland is different. The source that's most often quoted about this case is the so-called diary that was kept by one of the many priests brought on to try to help Roland. Father Bishop, who you'll hear about later, kept a diary of the events, but included information about the situation from before he got involved. Also, even though there were five copies of this diary, it remains hard to come by. So, understandably, there's a lot of confusion about who did what to whom and when exactly. What happened and when is really anyone's guess at this point. So I'm going to give you the story as best I could parse from a few different sources that seem reliable. In January of 1949, Roland and his grandmother were hanging out at home on a Friday evening when they heard a scratching in the walls. The family called an exterminator, but even after the visit, the scratching sounds continued. In fact, the scratching noises picked up every night at 7 p.m. and continued till midnight. They also noticed a dripping sound in the grandmother's bedroom, but only when Roland was in the room. Then a framed painting of Jesus moved on the wall, and Roland described a feeling of feet marching inside his mattress. Fruit started to go flying through the kitchen. Furniture moved by itself. Something was definitely not right. 
On January 26th, Roland's beloved eccentric Aunt Tilly died after a long struggle with MS. Tilly had been a spiritualist, which was a sort of trendy religion in the day that basically just subscribed to the belief that the living could communicate with the dead. After Aunt Tilly's death, Roland seemed to become agitated and withdrawn. One night, during the bizarre melee going on around them, Roland's mother or grandmother supposedly yelled out, Aunt Tilly, if that's you, knock three times. And three knocks were heard. And then, just to confirm, I guess, she was like, okay, but if it's really you, knock four times. And four knocks were heard. And I'm sure it was comforting to believe that all this chaos was just Aunt Tilly trying to communicate from the other side. But the scratching and flying fruit and feet marching inside Roland's mattress started before Aunt Tilly died. Also, couldn't she have found a better way to communicate than flying bananas? Like, what are you trying to tell us, Aunt Tilly? We need more fiber in our diets? After about a month of erratic behavior from Roland, phantom mice in the walls, and the furniture rearranging itself around the house, Roland's parents called their Lutheran minister for help. And if that seems like a strange first option, remember that in 1949, people didn't talk about mental health issues. Pretty much anyone who was diagnosed with a serious mental illness was institutionalized. And let me tell you, a psychiatric hospital was not somewhere anyone wanted to be. Patients were regularly abused, neglected, over-medicated, and left to rot. So one can understand the family's hesitance at involving a doctor. So to their minister they went. According to one source I read, the Doe's also called a rabbi, which I have to say was very open-minded. Good on them. At one point, Roland began to speak in a foreign language. And just to be clear, this kid wasn't normally a polyglot. It was usually just English for Roland, so suddenly speaking in another language was unusual. The rabbi thought Roland was possibly speaking Hebrew, but apparently a professor of Oriental languages who was also there thought he was speaking Aramaic. Now, I don't know how many people we're supposed to understand were examining Roland at this point, but it sounds like half the faculty of the Religious Studies Department at Georgetown was standing in Roland's bedroom. The Doe's minister, Reverend Schultz, suggested they let Roland sleep over at his place so he could witness the behavior for himself. Now, if you're like me, giant red warning bells are going off in your head. And please understand, I'm not implying that all priests are pedophiles, but the thought of leaving my child alone overnight with someone I didn't know very well is troubling. Then again, in 1949, people didn't know what we know now about certain abuses that take place among certain men of authority and adolescent boys. Plus, why would you not trust the man who is essentially guiding you to heaven? Anyway, Reverend Schultz was like, Let's see if this kid can pull off these pranks in my house. But his doubt vanished as he watched Roland tip over in a chair without having moved. And when the bed vibrated and Schultz moved Roland to a pile of blankets on the floor, he watched as the blankets moved on their own, pulling Roland under the bed. Roland didn't wake up until his head hit the bedpost. And he was like, see, I told you so. So Reverend Schultz is like, um... Maybe take him in for an evaluation? Roland's parents took him to the doctor, who, after a thorough examination, declared Roland was perfectly fine, if a little high-strung. 
he definitely didn't say anything about a poltergeist or demons. But then they took Roland to a, quote, mental hygiene clinic, which, ugh. After two evaluations at the mental hygiene clinic, and before he was supposed to have a third, marks began to appear on Roland's skin, apparently from nowhere. Random marks and words that looked like they had been scratched onto Roland's skin with claws. It's worth noting here that from what it looks like, Roland's mother was the only one who witnessed the marks actually appearing in real time. They did not take Roland back to the mental hygiene clinic for his third evaluation, possibly because recent reports had uncovered deplorable conditions in psychiatric hospitals. It's understandable that Roland's parents might have feared that Roland would be committed to one of those awful places and decided to stick with the clergy instead. Roland's mother went back to Reverend Schultz and he was like, this is above my pay grade. You got to go to the Catholics for this. So Roland was taken to Father Albert Hughes of St. James Catholic Church, whose prescription for Roland was blessed candles, holy water and specific prayers. Roland's mother claimed that she sprinkled the whole house with holy water and then put the bottle on a shelf from which it flew off on its own and landed intact across the room. Fruit once again went flying around the kitchen. Whoever the spirit was, they hated fruit. Tables went tipping over and a Bible landed at Roland's feet. As for the blessed candles, once they were lit, a comb went flying across the room, somehow extinguishing them. Listen, you can bless a candle literally for Jesus, but everyone knows if an evil comb has it out for that candle, it doesn't stand a chance. It was around this time that Roland was taken out of school because his desk was constantly moving around the room all willy-nilly, supposedly on its own. Roland's mother went back to Father Hughes and was like, nope, still possessed. And Father Hughes decided Roland needed a good old-fashioned exorcism. So he went to the bishop and was like, you gotta find someone to exorcise this kid. And the bishop was like, you do it. And Father Hughes was like, fuck or whatever the Catholic equivalent is. He did not feel qualified. Somehow the church and or Roland's parents at this point convinced Georgetown University Hospital to take Roland in for observation and for a place to hold the exorcism, even though they were very upfront about the problem being the devil. Just picture walking into a hospital today and being like, I'm possessed by the devil. The first call would be to the billing department who would be like, there's no billing code for demonic possession. Look, don't admit him unless he has a PPO. But this was the good old days where when you were sick, you could just go to the doctor. <laughs> Imagine that. So Roland went to the hospital and they figured out what was wrong with him and he lived happily ever after. Just kidding. Not only could the doctors at the hospital not figure out what was wrong with Roland, but as you're about to find out, he just got worse. So, Roland was admitted to the hospital and placed in restraints. When Father Hughes came to perform the exorcism, Roland apparently started thrashing and yelling in the bed. As the ritual progressed, Roland screamed out curse words and yelled in Latin, a language I'd like to point out that only the Pope has known how to speak for at least like 1,500 years. 
And something tells me eighth grade Latin class didn't include the kind of phrases Roland was likely yelling in that hospital room, you know? Like, I'm going to guess he wasn't yelling, where is the library, in Latin. According to a documentary about this whole schmageggy on the Discovery Channel, Roland managed to break through his wrist restraint, somehow tear a spring out of the mattress, and then slash Father Hughes from his shoulder to his wrist, which seems even less likely than the devil possessing some random 14-year-old kid. I'm filing that one under, yeah, no, that didn't happen. In a different source, however, I read that the ritual performed at Georgetown was a baptism, not an exorcism. Though, honestly, I think the devil hates both of those things relatively equally, so either way, the devil wasn't having it. After the failed exorcism that may have been a baptism, the word Lewis was scratched into Roland's chest. Roland's mother decided this meant they had to go to St. Louis to visit family. Now, it seems the family actually lived in Normandy, Missouri, which is about 20 minutes outside of St. Louis, which is like saying you're from New York City when you're actually from Yonkers. Like, nice try, Bob, but Yonkers ain't it. In the devil's defense, though, Normandy is a much longer word to have to scratch into the relatively small chest of a 14-year-old. Also, they might have misinterpreted it and ended up in France, which, no offense to Missouri, would have been a much nicer vacation. Anyway, in Missouri, everything continued. The beds Roland slept on shook, the scratching sounds kept going, and the scratches kept appearing on his body. Now here's the thing. The story goes that Roland was reading a comic book one night when he had a terrible pain on his abdomen, and when he lifted his shirt, there were scratches. His relatives were like, OMG, the scratches happened through his shirt? But, like, did it ever occur to them that he scratched himself and then went about reading a comic book like nothing was wrong and then he pretended to feel the scratches as they happened? It's not like Roland was getting full body exams constantly. He could easily have scratched himself. Don't ask me why. Attention? I don't know. Teenagers are weird. Father Raymond J. Bishop was brought in from a church in St. Louis and blessed Roland's relative's house and the room Roland slept in. This is when he begins a diary account of the events. Father Bishop sprinkled holy water in the sign of a cross on Roland's bed and pinned a second-class relic, something a saint supposedly had owned at some point, onto Roland's bed. All was relatively quiet for a bit. For Roland, at this point, relatively quiet meant the scratching was still going on and his mattress was moving, but in the grand scheme of what he'd put up with till then, that had become small potatoes. Father Bishop came back and sprinkled holy water on Roland. I guess he was encouraged by how Roland had apparently responded to the last treatment. This holy water, though, made Roland cry out, and when his mother lifted his shirt, there were zigzag scratches on his abdomen. Again, he easily could have made them before, but whatever. Father Bishop then placed a first-class relic from St. Francis Xavier under Roland's pillow. Want to know what the relic was? a piece of St. Francis Xavier's arm bone. Okie dokie. At this point, everyone left Roland alone. Again. But don't worry, the bone fragment will protect him. Or not. A few minutes later, a loud noise came from Roland's room. 
When everyone rushed in, they found a 75-pound bookcase had swiveled in a complete circle. Some other stuff had been knocked over. The holy arm bone fragment was now at the foot of the bed, and the other thing that had been pinned to the bed was now gone completely. So, yet another priest, Father Bowden, was brought on. Father Bowden took one look at Roland and went to his superior to suggest an exorcism, and he too was told by his superior that he was to perform the exorcism, and he too was not happy about the assignment. I mean, I get it. The last guy who tried supposedly had his arm sliced from top to bottom. And even if he didn't, because, come on, he didn't, it's pretty clear this whole exorcism thing is unpleasant business for everyone involved. So Father Bowdern and his assistant, Martin Halloran, a young Jesuit who wasn't yet a priest, went to Roland's relative's house to get going. Right away, the devil's quirky little antics started with the mattress Roland was laying on shaking and moving and Mark's magically appearing on his abdomen. According to Halloran, whenever anyone said Jesus or Mary or St. Michael, more Marks appeared, this time on Roland's legs, back, and throat. As far as I can tell, this is the first time anyone claimed to have seen the Marks actually appear in real time. Halloran claimed the word hell appeared on Roland's chest and that a picture of the devil was scratched onto Roland's shoulder. So... It turns out exorcism takes a long time. And Father Bowdern still had his day job of being a pastor. It's not like he was given time off to focus exclusively on Roland, so the exorcism took place at night and took a few days. Finally, finally, Roland's mother basically had a nervous breakdown. In the documentary, it said it was because of lack of sleep. I'm going to go ahead and say that having a child who is possessed by Satan is pretty taxing. Even if you're getting your recommended eight to nine hours of sleep a night, watching your kid yell at priests in Latin would make any parent collapse. So Roland was moved to a local rectory that had been established back in the day to tend to plague victims. I guess they were like plague, possession, potato, potato. The one caveat, though, was that Roland needed to be baptized as Catholic. The baptism took three hours. Apparently it's only supposed to take 15 minutes, I don't know. I have literally never been baptized. Roland was particularly full of the devil that day and was letting everyone know, what with the screaming and thrashing. According to one source, Roland punched Father Bowdern in the nuts and yelled, That's a nutcracker for you, isn't it? Cheeky devil. So, at this point, it's mid-April. This ordeal has been going on for five months. Five months. According to one source, Father Bowdern sometimes wore a raincoat to the exorcism to protect himself against the constant vomit and spit pouring forth from Roland's mouth. On one occasion, one of the attending priests claimed Roland flew through the air toward Father Bowdern, but only got as far as the exorcism ritual book in Father Bowdern's hands, and when Roland touched the book, it instantly vaporized into confetti. Though TBH, I only found these two stories in one source, and I don't know, they seem suspect. On April 18th, Father Bowdern continued the exorcism. He forced Roland to wear a chain of medals and hold a crucifix. I mean, holding a crucifix seems like the most basic decision when you're possessed by the devil, right? Like Roland should have had a crucifix in his hand at all times. Of course, if he could break his restraints and somehow dig a spring out of a mattress and slice someone with it, 
Lord only knows what he could do with a crucifix. So maybe it was better Roland was generally left unarmed. But a chain of medals? What kind of medals? Like horse jumping competition medals? Best cherry pie at the St. Louis Fair? Participation medal for Little League? I need more information about this chain of medals and why a demon wouldn't like it. At one point, Roland yelled that he was one of the fallen angels, and I don't think he was referring to the 1980s punk band from England with that name. And just a little sidebar from me, an agnostic Jew who hasn't set foot in a church in over a decade, but if God created the angels, why would any of them have failed whatever test he gave them and be cast out of heaven? Like, I don't know, that seems like a flaw in the design, which... Like, fair, everyone is allowed mistakes. Except, literally, God. So. Regardless of Roland slash the devil's tantrum, Father Bowdern kept yelling about casting him out and etc. until finally, around 11 p.m., Roland sat up in bed and, in a voice that wasn't his own, he said, Satan! I am Saint Michael! I command you, Satan, and the other evil spirits to leave this body in the name of Dominus immediately, now, now, now. Roland had one last spasm, fell back on his pillows and said, he's gone. Roland was finally free of the devil. Thus ended Roland's fight with the devil. By all accounts, he has gone on to live a normal life. But the story didn't end there, of course. A Georgetown University student named William Blatty read the article about Roland's ordeal in the Washington Post published that fall. Despite the article being extremely sparse and not nearly as grippingly written as this episode, the story stuck with Blatty. So much so that about two decades later, he used it as inspiration for his novel, The Exorcist. The book was a hit and people were hooked. So much so that Hollywood came knocking and hired Blatty to adapt it into a movie which was released only two years after the book, which, if you know anything about Hollywood, is absolute warp speed. Usually it takes about eight decades to get anything produced in Hollywood. I'm not bitter. The movie, The Exorcist, won three Oscars and kicked off a new era of religious-based horror movies, really tapping into the zeitgeist of a generation of kids who were shunning the religion they'd grown up with. Blatty's novel spawned several films and TV shows, including the most recent Exorcist-type movie released in 2020 called The Last Exorcist, but trust me, it won't be. In fact, there's already another one in production as we speak. So what could it be that overtook poor Roland Doe? Did the devil really possess this random 14-year-old? Did Roland suffer from some undiagnosed disease that manifested itself in ways that made people think the devil was to blame? Or is it possible that this was all a prank that got out of hand? Spoiler alert, it was probably the last one. Coming up, I'll introduce you to the man who came along to throw a big, wet blanket over this whole affair. In December of 1998, 
writer Mark Upsasnik published an article in Strange magazine entitled The Haunted Boy of Cottage City, The Cold Hard Facts Behind the Story That Inspired the Exorcist. The article was the culmination of a year-long investigation into Roland Doe and his alleged demonic possession in 1949. Upsasnik was no stranger to unexplained phenomenon, having already written about Bigfoot and other so-called monsters of his home state of Maryland. So it makes sense that he would hone in on the infamous story of the boy from Maryland who inspired a cultural maelstrom. Obsasnik's first task was identifying the actual person behind the pseudonym Roland Doe. And right away, Obsasnik learned that even the town where this was all said to have taken place was wrong. The original article from 1949 reported that Roland was from Mount Rainier, Maryland. But Obsasnik basically figured out that no one in Mount Rainier had even heard of the kid who'd been possessed until an article was published about it that incorrectly named the town as Mount Rainier. And once the article came out, the legend just sort of grew into an urban myth. And then somehow, he figured out that it actually happened in Cottage City. In the article, Upsasnik wrote, I was the first journalist to debunk this mystery. If something as basic as location was wrong, what else would Upsasnik dig up that might poke holes in this story? Turns out, quite a bit. Once he'd determined the correct town, Obsasnik was able to narrow down what high school Roland would have attended, which was, incidentally, Gonzaga, which I'd only heard of because I'm obsessed with cheerleading, and they have one of the best cheer programs in the country. Anyway, Upsasnik managed to get his hands on the Gonzaga yearbook from the year Roland would have graduated, based on Roland's reported age in the media coverage. He found out five of the graduates belonged to the same church Roland and his family had attended, two of those five lived in Cottage City, and one of those two came up as a match for Roland Doe's birth date. This, my friends, is what we call dogged research. For some insane reason, each member of the graduating class had their home address printed below their picture in the yearbook. Their home address! Yikes! So now, armed with what should have been confidential information, Obsasnik was able to identify the real Roland Doe, which was, in his own words, quote, something no other journalist had ever accomplished. Obsasnik then tracked down Roland's friends from back in the day. It's probably more accurate to refer to these people as neighbors rather than friends. Roland was, let's just say, not the most popular kid. Roland was, by all accounts, a loner, a mischief maker, and a prankster who was, quote, prone to tantrums and even violent outbursts toward his family and his few friends, exhibiting cruel and at times even sadistic behavior towards other children and even animals. It was evident that elements of this alleged possession had always been there going back years and years, end quote. Even Roland's only actual friend was what we would call today a frenemy. The two fought constantly and were always trying to outdo each other in whatever they were doing. One of their favorite pastimes, it seems, was seeing who could spit the farthest. Look, don't ask me to explain the choices of teenage boys. They are one of science's greatest mysteries. And also, 
entertainment options were limited for teenage boys in the late 40s. Some claim they could spit as far as 10 feet. This weird spitting thing may explain why Roland spit so much during his exorcisms. As Ulla, the Swedish receptionist in the musical version of The Producer, wisely said, when you got it, flaunt it. This one friend of Roland called him a mean bastard. According to these former pals of Roland's, it was Roland's mother and grandmother who were interested in Ouija boards and mysticism, but also, conversely, extremely devoted Lutherans. Not sure how those two philosophies mesh, but you do you. Obsasnik implicates Roland's mother and grandmother by suggesting that it was their religious fanaticism and their smothering of Roland that helped turn him into a spoiled brat who could get away with anything. You know what? I'm really tired of this trope. Yes, of course, it was the mother's fault. She smothered him. She loved him too much. She didn't love him enough. She was too affectionate. She was cold. Give me a fucking break, please. Anyway. Obsasnik's conclusion was that Roland was an outcast who desperately wanted to get out of his middle school where he had no friends, so he started misbehaving in ways that might afford him some kind of break from school. Roland overdid it, though, and not only got kicked out of school, but ended up being restrained to beds with middle-aged men screaming at him, which understandably might have pissed the kid off and made his antics even worse. The incident in his classroom where his desk moved, quote, all on its own was most likely just Roland shaking his desk. Of course he's going to say it wasn't me. And from the sounds of it, what with his violent outbursts, spitting habit, and pretending his desk was possessed, I'm sure the school was like, you know what? Just go. We literally can't with you anymore. As for the beds that were constantly going all over the place and vibrating, guess what? They were literally on wheels. They were on wheels. Not only that, but shitty mattresses from back in the day were super bouncy. It wouldn't have taken much for Roland to make it look like the bed was moving on its own. In the Discovery Channel documentary, psychiatrist Elizabeth Bauman said that Roland's behavior could be chalked up to what we now call dissociative identity disorder or multiple personality disorder. She explains that people with this disorder often look like they have an evil look in their eye when they dissociate. It can seem like they're possessed if you don't know what you're looking at. And in 1949, no one really knew what they were looking at when it came to serious mental illness. As for the other languages Roland allegedly spoke, they were most likely gibberish that sounded close enough to a language to make people think he was speaking an actual language. I don't know how Obsasnik accounts for all the other furniture and decor moving around on their own. I suppose he chalks a lot of it up to embellishment and exaggeration over time. Lord knows these kinds of stories tend to take on a life of their own as the years pass. I'm no religious historian, but maybe the Catholic Church was trying to drum up more followers in the late 40s and figured a real-life fire-and-brimstone exorcism might do the trick. Father Halloran was the last of the priests involved in this saga alive by the time Obsasnik did his investigating. And even he said he couldn't go on record to say that what happened to Roland was a possession. 
And while he had been adamant in the Discovery Channel documentary about the words and marks that appeared on Roland's body, he seemed to walk those statements back a bit. Asked if Upsasnik could see Halloran's copy of this elusive diary about the events, Halloran told him he burned it, which seems like an odd thing to do to a record of a miraculous event, but who am I to tell a man of God what to do? What I will do, as usual, is offer up my completely expert opinion. I think Roland was a teenage boy with some emotional and or behavioral issues who may have suffered from some kind of abuse. His behavior does suggest a reaction to trauma, I say with my BA in psychology. I think he probably needed more love and friendship and, like many boys, didn't know how to get it, so he lashed out and became violent. We all know a kid like Roland today could easily do a lot of harm to a lot of people. Ironically, the stigma around mental health has lifted quite a bit since the mid-20th century, and help for whatever it was Roland may have had is more abundant. But access to that help is pretty hard to gain. Given that, it makes sense that a kid might turn to violence and say the devil made him do it. Next time on Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan. Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax. And when she'd seen what she had done, she gave her father 41. Or did she? We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for something we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. This episode was written by me and researched by Jess McKillop. A complete list of our sources for each episode is available on our website. Our episodes are mixed and edited by Jennifer Swatek. If you like our show, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUPod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan Facebook group to join in the conversation.